But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great sovereign. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. There's a hair coloring joke in there, but it's really way too easy, so I just sort of let that go. Let your words be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Uh, this passage for today is tough. Frankly, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is tough. Any way, any way we might read it, it is tough. But it is important, I think, to read it in such a way that it isn't impossible. The way we normally read it, I think, makes it impossible. What I'd like to do today is explain how the Sermon on the Mount is possible. Not easy, certainly not that. I will continue to maintain that it is tough, very tough. I can't use like uh, hyperboles anymore, it's sort of exaggerated terms, without thinking of Donald Trump now, so it's, uh, I'm going to have to learn how to... Uh, change my mode of speech, I think. I will maintain that to obey Jesus' commands in these three chapters, or even in the few verses that we're looking at today, is radically to move away from the manner of life that educated Westerners have been conditioned to desire. A person, obeys the sermon, a person who obeys the Sermon on the Mount will no longer be a good American. Such a person will also no longer be a good German or a good Chilean or a good Kenyan or a good Australian or a good Korean, or if you want to include all the continents, a new, a good Antarctican, I guess. The mode of life the Sermon on the, Man, uh, Sermon on the Mount commands is incompatible with the mode of life the modern nation-state commands. You must choose whom you shall obey the day you come to understand what the Sermon on the Mount and, say, America are asking of you, because they are asking for radically different futures and radically different ways of getting to them. First, how do we tend to understand the Sermon on the Mount and thus make it impossible? Protestants and Roman Catholics tend to read the Bible as a collection of propositions, many of which describe legal obligations. We tend to read the Bible at least in the first place, not as a means of grace, like visiting the sick or celebrating Eucharist or praying, but as informational, as a collection of statements that we are to commit to memory and then use as tools 
for evaluating our own opinions and behavior and the opinions and behavior of others. I think that's really the way we read it. We tend to read the Bible as an authoritative, error-free collection of Wikipedia articles, quite a few of which focus on behavior control, sort of like the way books of traffic regulations do. Motorcycle lane sharing is legal in California. The California Driver's Handbook says so. Motorcycle lane sharing is illegal in Oklahoma. The Oklahoma Driver's Handbook says so. We think of the Bible that way. Divorce, otherwise than due to adultery, is sinful, that is illegal, a lot of people have maintained, because the heavenly driver's handbook says so. Becoming angry or lusting or swearing is sinful, that is illegal, because the heavenly driver's handbook says so, the Bible says so, the Sermon on the Mount says so. Most Protestants and Roman Catholics think something like this. Some Roman Catholics, for example, have maintained that as hard as are the commands of the Sermon on the Mount, the grace of God through our sacramental works in a sacramental church may transform us, sanctify us, heal us, that we may come more and more to do what God commands and thus become righteous. Some Lutherans, for example, tend to maintain that one of the most important functions of the commands in the Sermon on the Mount is to show us how powerless we are by our own resources to obey God. Our inability to refrain from lust or anger humbles us and by the Holy Spirit moves us to the place that we may throw ourselves on God's mercy. And so, grace leads us to ruin so that faith might be born in us and we might live dependent not on our own merit or power <clears throat> or successes, but on God's grace alone. Righteousness comes by grace alone through faith alone. This is a very Protestant, very Lutheran notion. In both traditions, the assumption is that our sinfulness makes it impossible for us to do as Christ commands without God's grace. One of these traditions is more optimistic than the other about the extent to which our condition might be improved, the extent to which our spiritual disease may be healed, but they begin with the same set of assumptions, more or less. In critiquing this tradition, I do things like critiquing because I'm an academic, you know, so that's what we do. We critique. In critiquing this tradition, I do not in the least wish to discount the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. I actually have a very robust doctrine of sin and believe that the only way to be faithful to the God of Jesus is by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, that is grace. 
It's just that I don't think the Bible, or more specifically the Sermon on the Mount, is to be read as a kind of driver's handbook, a kind of user's manual for operating a Christian life. It is to be read as true, certainly, but not in the way a car's navigation program is true. You know, as a graphic representation of the left and right turns you are to make on the way to your destination. If it were that, then it would be impossible. <laughs> Many of us know ourselves well enough that we know that if avoiding hell is about avoiding anger, lust, and otherwise managing the world, then we don't have a chance, not a chance in hell. <laughs> but the Sermon on the Mount is not in the least about exercising self-management to such an extent that we are in control of our violent or sexual or possessive thoughts and impulses. Let me read again the last portion of the passage for today, the one I think we have the hardest time relating to, the one that seems most quaint. Again, you have heard it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great sovereign. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, let your words be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. What is, what is this passage saying? It seems so antiquated. Perhaps it is so historically limited that it has nothing significant to say to us in the early, in early 21st century Southern California. I mean, why should we have any interest in this stuff one way or the other? I mean, what's wrong with swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God? Isn't it just making a promise? In this passage, it isn't. <clears throat> the promises made in this little passage are all about guaranteeing the truth of your words by connecting them to something in which your swearing grounds them. These promises, you know, swearing by God, by heaven, these promises are about putting down collateral putting down something that will authorize my words, give them a backup. And so it seems to have been customary at the time for people to swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head, although it may be that the last phrase is added by Jesus as a punchline to make the point. 
The assumption is that I can manage those things. I can haul them out when it's helpful, like earnest money, and so secure my words. Jesus' response is, you can't manage any of those things. You have no power over any of those things. Heaven isn't yours. The earth is not yours. Jerusalem is not yours. Shoot. And I thought of using the other word. I just, I just don't have the courage. See, this is a sad, sad thing. Shit. Your head's not even yours. Nothing is yours. You have no control over anything. Be happy with yes or no. It suits you better. So in other words, if you can't even manage your head, don't think you can manage your impulses. Okay, if Jesus is not preaching the Sermon on the Mount to get us to manage our behavior, what is he doing? Very simply, he is preaching the Sermon on the Mount to get us off ourselves and into the lives of one another. Luther was right that far, it seems to me, but I don't think Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount to humiliate us by means of our moral failures. I mean, such a, such a thing may, in fact, happen from time to time, say, with macho types who have serious problems with pride, but I don't think it happens generally, and I don't think it's the point of these chapters. I think the point of these chapters is to tell us that it's not about whether I succeed or fail to pass my driver's test or operate my vehicle without traffic tickets. It's about whether I have, it is not about whether I have a passing thought about punching someone out or having sex with someone I'm attracted to. It's not about me at all. It's about the people I meet the people beside me, or behind me, or in front of me. It's about my neighbors, some of whom want to harm me, some of whom are my enemies. I have for over a decade employed, implored this little church to display a crucifix in some prominent place. I've failed in that endeavor so far, but I'm going to try one more time, maybe one last time. And I mean like a, like a Catholic crucifix. Like people walk in here and say, y'all Catholic? Everything in the Gospels is about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Everything. If it seems like something in there is not, look again. It's there. The Sermon on the Mount is a way Jesus spells out what following Jesus the Crucified One looks like. 
In the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is never something he does to get us off the hook. It is something he does so that we may join him, so that we too may be crucified. That's what Eucharist is. It should horrify us to celebrate Eucharist. Eucharist is the proclamation of the death of Christ until he returns. It is our maintaining that our food, our lives, our future, our hope is in the moment when Jesus opens to all the world from the highest to the lowest, from the most exalted to the most humiliated and says, come unto me. Perhaps we should say, come into me because he is cut wide open when he's on the cross. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The problem, though, is that it is almost impossible for us to think of the crucifixion of Jesus without thinking of a certain atonement theory that turns him into a debt payment. As long as we think of him as an economic transaction, a kind of balancing of the books, a kind of balancing of the scales, a getting even, we have no chance of understanding what his crucifixion resurrection is. I really believe this with, like in my bones. So I squirm when I hear these arguments presented about how Jesus pays off our debt. My gosh, are we that economically fixated? The crucifixion of Jesus is Jesus saying to everyone, no matter how far gone, no matter how hopeless, no matter how crushed and broken by trauma, no matter how doomed to fail, that everyone is loved by God, is embraced by God, is made holy by God, precisely as the Jesus in solidarity with them is embraced by God in the resurrection of his crucified body. The crucifixion, resurrection, this is one thing, crucifixion slash, slash resurrection, one thing. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is not the flipping of some switch that makes it possible for God to forgive. It is rather the act of God's forgiveness. And it is that precisely on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, the only 24-hour period in which Jesus remained dead from beginning to end, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday, which are the days not when Jesus is first wounded and then healed, but the, day, the days in which the Jesus who is still mutilated, the still mutilated body of Jesus, the still slaughtered lamb, the still broken and dead and damned Galilean peasant is glorified 
by the abundant, the eternal life of the Holy Spirit. Thus, to fail to look directly at the crucified body of Jesus, for example, by looking at a crucifix, not an empty cross, which is already saying, as far as I'm concerned, the crucifixion of Jesus doesn't mean anything. That's what empty cross is. He said, obviously, with a personal opinion. Thus, to fail to look directly at the crucified body of Jesus, to fail to teach our children to look directly at the crucified body of Jesus, is to fail to look at the crucified people of this world, including at ourselves. The crucifixion of Jesus only makes sense when we understand that this is a world that crucifies people, that lynches people, that waterboards people, that napalms people, that gasses people, that drops atomic bombs on people, that guns people down, that discards emotionally scrambled people, that discards fat people and ugly people and mentally slow people and and traumatized people and crippled people and old people and unproductive people. I'm pretty sure I'm all of those things actually. A crucifix says, it does not matter how low this world tells you that you are, God reached into the bloody tomb of the mutilated body of Jesus and glorified him, saved him, liberated him, saturated him with a life that nothing in this world can take away from him or you. The Sermon on the Mount, and in particular its verses that we are attending to today, declare that when you look at your neighbor, you look at your brother and sister, you look at one to whom God says, yes. He or she is not there for you to exploit or use. He or she is not there to be subject to your impulses. He or she is not there to be controlled by you, managed by you. God says yes to them as God says yes to you. Say yes to them. Close the distance between you and them. Open your body, your muscles and blood and skin and bones. Open your work to them. When Jesus lived and died among the despicable people of this world, he loved them. He loved them so much that he mingled his flesh and blood with them. The Gospels go way out of their way to show how he mingles his flesh and blood with the despicable people he lived with. I mean, to eat with them, it's not like they, you know, you're handed something that's, that's been microwaved and you peel back the, you know, the plastic off the top so you can eat it. 
you're, you eat something that has been handled by people all over the place, and you dip the stuff into like a common bowl. So you're having all kinds of, you know, infectious stuff entering into what you're putting in your body. Whatever they were became him. He became them. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means. To say that his body was mutilated, even as it came out of the tomb, is to say that there is absolutely no barrier between him and them, between him and us, between you and me. Let me just see if I can make that clear. I know it's a, it's a very disgusting image, mutilated body of Christ. And it's a phrase I use all the time, too. Uh, I mean, this is true for us, but certainly for, true for ancient Israel. The skin is there as a barrier, as a boundary. It keeps foreign matter from getting into your body. And so the, your task is to keep your body whole, and that means especially to keep your skin intact. And so if, if you have anything that messes up with the boundary, you've got to go through all kinds of ritual processes to get purified so you can get involved again in the sacrificial process that'll give you a chance, you know? Uh, and so a skin disease like leprosy, I'm, I'm certain that the reason leprosy is, is so prominent in the Gospels is because it makes so clear that somebody's boundaries have been breached. When Jesus is, is scourged, you know what scourging is? I mean, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you have some like, very nauseating image. It is a very nauseating thing. Um, you have this whip with... Thong, and this is gross, and I'm not trying to sensationalize this, but it's a big deal. You have this, this, this whip with thongs, a bunch of them, and on the end of, the, of, these, of these strips of leather um, are tied various kinds of sharp, hard objects, like bone or pieces of metal. And you take this and you beat someone. I mean, one time, and their skin's ripped. Jesus was scourged like 30-something times or something. I mean, this is like the most extreme, imaginable kind of breaching of a body's boundary. And then, of course, he's nailed onto the cross. We concentrate on his five bleeding wounds, and then we really should. I mean, that's really good. But anybody in that time who read the Gospels would know that the holes in his hands and feet and sides would hardly be visible because of the wreck of the rest of his body. There is no, and the point of this is not to exaggerate the pain and all that sort of thing. That, that is a distraction. The point is to say that the boundary's gone. There is no longer any separation between him and anyone else. His whole life indicated that he didn't believe there was a separation between him and anyone else. But the crucifixion destroys any possible illusion that there's a boundary between him and us unless you develop some kind of weird atonement theory that makes you not think about bodies at all. To think of this body is to say, I get into you and you get into me, there's nothing blocking that passage. That's what love is here. Love means my skin's been shredded. It means I can't keep you out and I'm gonna get all over you anyway. It is not about paying debt. Just get over that. I mean, it may be one helpful image among about a thousand, 
But if you make it the primary way you think about Jesus, that pain, there is not a chance in the world he will understand what God is doing in him. It is not about shaming anyone. It is not about guilt or self-esteem, neither positive or negative self-esteem, neither plenty or none. It's not about that. I mean, it's always helpful to you know, encourage people to have positive self-esteem. That still has pretty much nothing to do with the gospel. It's a nice thing to do, you know, help people feel good about themselves. I, I think we should do that all the time. That is not the point. It's not like, gee, I must be special because God loves me. It's not that. It's not about that at all. It is not about your psychological well-being, which means the salvation worked by God in Jesus is no less happening in your life if you are massively screwed up behaviorally and emotionally than if you weren't. Your psychological condition is no way to measure how godly you are. Trust me, in the history of the church, some of the most screwed up people you can imagine have had the greatest impact on sort of awakening the gospel to the world. So, I mean, we all want one another to be psychologically healthy and all that. I mean, that's a good thing. We all know that's a good thing. But it's not a condition for God's love. It's not like, I'm sorry, you will always be profoundly disturbed. You'll always be, you know, crushingly depressed. No matter how much we treat your mental illness, you will always be socially maladjusted. I mean, that's, that's sad. We'll all be sad about that. The person going through that will be very unhappy about that. But it means zero for the gospel. It is not, it doesn't make it any easier or harder. Rather, it is about Jesus' solidarity with us. You are to love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus loved us all as himself and did so to such an extent that there is no boundary left on his body that would keep anyone out. Now the point of all this, and we can keep going, I suppose, until the little children come. If you have, like, if you have any questions or comments or you want to stand up and denounce me and leave or something, that's okay too. Uh, but what I want to say is that if you can't look at a crucifix, how can you look at somebody that you know in your bones will never get well? How can you hang around with someone you know, who saps all of your energy, who wears you out, but who requires your presence? How do you do that? If the point is that people must get better, the point rather is people are there to be loved. They are their, their muscles and blood and skin and bones, and my muscles and blood and skin and bones are to be mingled. It means yours and mine, you know? But people I hang around with a lot, especially those folks, everyone I see, you know, it's, good, it's okay to, to realize that if I shake hands with this dirty person on the street, I may catch something, you know? I better be careful to wash my hands before I touch my mouth. 
You know, something like that. It's okay to realize that. It's not okay not to shake hands. It's a good thing to be unwise about the negative consequences of loving people. Let me ask, do you want to ask anything before the little kids come or anything? Any, I mean, there are a lot of questions in this thing, of course. And I can very easily just walk back to the seat. I'm okay with that, too. So don't feel the impulse or the obligation to ask a question. But anything? Anything that you want especially cleared up right now or made differently obscure? Yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you that to your kids? Yeah, well, I, it, it actually would not be as hard as explaining it to some, like, 50-year-old businessman, because children don't know about debt yet. Uh, I mean, so the problem is that they start hearing this stuff, and then eventually they sort of, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know why I'm making these references to The Passion of the Christ. I really pretty much despise the film. Uh, <laughs> But I, it, was, it was screened at APU in my first years there. I can't remember exactly when, but... And it just had this devastating impact on the student body. I mean, people were just crushed by the film. And I feel certain the reason for that is that they believed he was going through all of this stuff because they had sinned. You know, it's my indebtedness that caused this love, loving man, this really pretty handsome man, you know, to go through this agony, the pain and suffering. And so they were just devastated, you know. And, um, but that's because they've been conditioned to think that way. So we can work with little kids right away. In fact, it seems to me that one of the most important things in, I sort of say capitalist America, but it's capitalist earth, is to teach children that nothing that counts in life is about debt. Even if you have to declare bankruptcy, can't pay your bills, you know, whatever, find yourself sort of hamstrung because of debt of one kind or another. That stuff, all that's nothing. What's important is, you know, and, and there's um, one of my favorite writers, and I'll go sit down real soon. Uh, in fact, my favorite writer, period, is, is Soren Kierkegaard. I've spent way too much time with him. He has a wonderful book called Works of Love, and in one of his chapters, I mean, he says a couple of things. Uh, at one point, he says, God has absolutely no understanding of money, which I think is really good. Uh, but in another place, he decides to kind of play around with the idea of debt. And, but he, he undoes the idea. And so he says, when you love someone, you know, as your neighbor, the way Jesus commands, your debt to the other becomes infinite. Now, that sounds awful, like, my gosh, it's going to take me forever to pay that thing off. And literally, is this what we true? And, of course, what it does when you're infinitely at debt, it means that you can't pay it off. The whole idea of paying it off becomes meaningless. I mean, any number, no matter how large, divided by infinity, hey, y'all, is zero. So let us... I mean, we're going to have to deal with debt because of the kind of economic world we live in. 
But let us not allow that category to enter into the way we praise God. <laughs> 